Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. We're here to move the ag paradigm forward by helping you regenerate your soils using new ideas, research, and emerging technologies. Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm Kim Sheese. And I'm Monty Bottens. And we're your hosts. Thanks for joining us. Creating and measuring a smorgasbord of your microbes is on the menu for today's podcast with Dr. Stacy Zuber, NRCS Illinois State Soil Health Specialist. We'll dig into the soil health tests that are available and explore the work Dr. Zuber has done evaluating those tests and key indicators. We'll discuss soil health opportunities, not only in carbon credits, but also some of the other benefits that don't often get as much attention, but can be equally as important. We'll talk about local context as we explore what measuring soil health means for different types of soil and how important it is for you to start building your soil health portfolio now. So let's jump right in. Dr. Zuber, we're so glad to have you join us today. You know, one of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you is because of the work that you've done with soil health tests. But first, will you tell us a bit of your path and maybe some of the crossroads that brought you to where you're at today? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm happy to be on the podcast with you. Uh, So my background, I am a originally from Southeast Illinois, uh, Richland County. I grew up on a farm. Uh, my dad is still down there uh, farming corn, soybean, wheat. Um, so I grew up with a, a farm background and I ended up going to school. Uh, always have been interested in science and ended up going to school at the University of Illinois in chemistry. So a little different um, there was in chemistry and I was doing secondary education as a, as a minor and I ended up teaching high school science for three years. So I kind of had that education background and it takes a very special person to <laughs> be a good high school teacher. Um, I did okay at that teaching. Some of the rest of it was not exactly my strength. So I decided that I, I wanted to move on to kind of a different area, different field. I still had that science background. I still had that ag background. And so that kind of is what led me to decide I wanted to go back to school. Um, I wanted to go to grad school and and go into crop sciences, go into the agriculture side of things. And I kind of just lucked into the soil side of it, the the soil quality. There was a project um, that had funding for a master's student to come on board to do some soil quality assessments uh, with different crop management practices in Western Illinois, where we were doing some some research there. And I kind of got into that. And that's where really my soil health path really started. So doing that there, um, and I managed, and I, so that was at University of Illinois again, I did my master's and my PhD kind of on that same project, working on these soil quality measurements, which at that time was the soil quality. And now it's kind of moved terms to that soil health term. Um, But very overlapping concepts there, but working now into soil health. Um, and when I finished my PhD at the University of Illinois, I got the opportunity to go over into Indiana and I worked there um, with at Purdue University, got to work on a project um, that was done through the Conservation Cropping System Initiative in Indiana, which is a really amazing organization that they have there with all of their conservation partners working together. And I was brought in as a as a postdoctoral research fellow um, to work on 
doing some analysis of these soil health tests that they had been looking at, examining um, on a bunch of uh, on-farm data that they had. So they'd been collecting these soil health measurements from 14 different sites across the state. Um, and so I got to work with analyzing that data there in Indiana and really got a chance to work um, with the different groups there in Indiana and what they were doing with soil health. And then moved to Missouri um, after that one and got to do a very kind of similar looking at uh, soil health measurements there. They have a, a statewide cover crop cost share program and got to do some analysis of their soil health data from that project. So it was really interesting getting a chance to go into these two states to the east and west of Illinois working on soil health and seeing the efforts that are going on there. Um, and then the Illinois NRCS created this new position, the soil health specialist position that's new for Illinois. Other states have had this position, but it's new for Illinois. Um, and so I was really excited about getting a chance to come back to Illinois um, and really excited to get to work on soil health here, uh, you, know, you know, across the whole state and be able to apply some of those lessons I've learned from these other states and hopefully make a big difference here in Illinois and see how we can get different groups and different organizations working together on the same page for soil health. So when it comes to soil health, uh, the devil's in the definitions and the details, isn't it? It's, uh, it is a it's little this, bit, yes, Yeah, it's, sure. this, it's this huge, um, more of a concept, and we know what it is. You can feel it when you're in the field. You can smell it. You can see it. But, boy, putting a mathematical quantification to it is just extraordinarily difficult. So give us a little bit of, um, you know, the history of... Uh, <laughs> Putting a, a number to it, if you will, and 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 where before before your work began and 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 throughout your your work that you've done and and kind of bring us up to date. Where are we at in in quantifying soil health, if you will? All right, sure. So, you know, as you mentioned, there, the definitions of, of soil health has shifted, you know, um, a little bit, but we have this big overarching concept of it as really close related to soil functions, and so. The, one of the difficulties with assessing soil health in particular is that there are many, many different soil functions that are all important, but they're important in different degrees on different soils. So there's a lot of different soil health indicators that are used and they're all uh, designed to be, the, these tests and assessments are designed to be closely related to a specific function of the soil. So it's one of those things you can't just look at one individual number to give you an answer for how good your soil health is. Um, maybe the closest one to that we have is soil organic matter because so many of the different soil functions are very closely related to that. So typically if you have more organic matter in your soils, more organic carbon um, in your soils, that's going to mean a lot of these other functions of your soil, other measurements are going to be high as well. Um, but it takes a while for that to change over time. So kind of the progress of these tests and these indicators have, scientists have been working on a number of these different measurements uh, for years, for decades, even something like uh, active carbon goes back to the 90s that they've been doing this measurement. And just in the last few years, has that really become um, this focus with soil health become more of a measurement that's really been incorporated into that where we have these different indicators and that's kind of been because farmers want to be able to do these tests as well. They want to be able to use them, assess their soil health. So now you have different commercial soil labs that are beginning to 
use some of those tests that are out there and make them more available to farmers. Um, so one of the difficulties with that, I think, is that we see them as just another soil test, that they're the same as you know, a soil fertility test or something like that. And so they're not, there's, they're more complicated. There's a lot more factors to go into it because there's so many different tests and you're looking at a very different aspect of that soil. So you do have to take other precautions. You have to be more particular in how you take these measurements than you would with a traditional soil fertility test. Um, so now we have all these different indicators that are available and you can get them in packages. Um, so you can get multiple tests all together. And some of these even give you a soil health score or a soil health calculation. There's the Haney test, which is very commonly available from many different soil labs that they have that, that has, um, it has some nutrient parts to it, but it also has a uh, water extractable organic carbon and nitrogen. It has a soil respiration measurement and all of those get incorporated to give you a soil health score. Um, Cornell, the Comprehensive Assessment of Soil Health or CASH um, as it's called, uh, has another one that's 10 or more. I think it's about 10 different indicators that go into that to give you an overall quality score. Um, so those are available and then I'm hoping as time goes on, there'll be more of these other tests available individually for more labs because they can be useful, but you do have to really look at all of them together. And the interpretation of them is, is a little more complicated as well. And I think, you know, like you said, we're in a, the beginning stages of this too, really. Um, we've been doing, you know, neutral ammonium acetate, uh, Bray, Olson, pH, these type of tests we've done for a long period of time, and it's chemistry-oriented, you know, so it's very, mm -hmm. very easily repeatable. And <clears throat> some some of our listeners may not know, but certain, certain ones of these um, live tests, if you will, soil health tests, we have to pull them in a certain way, we have to transport them in a certain way at a certain temperature, and, and get it to the lab in a certain amount of time and make sure that the lab processes it in a certain amount of time that you don't lose moisture that you don't get too hot too cold and those kind of things so it's uh it's interesting and plus even like you were saying in the commercial labs we were part of the soil health partnership so i know there's a lot of variances and like you said the commercial labs are getting uh, up to speed on these kind of things but we've submitted with the soil health partnership we've submitted um, samples to the actual haney lab and, and they're mm -hmm. very very specific on how to handle, how to ship, keep cool, all these kind of things, ship overnight and, you know, very, <laughs> very costly, where when we're sending to other commercial labs, which I won't mention their name, it's different. It's just send, send it in a bag like normal and you check the box for a, for a Haney test on their submittal form and it's like, there's a big difference in how we're sending these through the mail between these two labs to the, the original versus the, you know, photocopy, if you will. So I think some of those things will have to sort them things out over time. But, um, you know, I and I also think there's hope with more robust, you know, PLFA tests and more more DNA-based testing. We had, you know, uh, some people come and speak at Ag Emerge about DNA-based testing. Um, where do you see the future going in this? And, you know, and, and people that are looking at carbon and, and pools of carbon and where it's deposited in the soil in order to be able to get carbon offset credits. You know, you kind of given us a background where we're at today. Where do you see testing going in the future to be able to actually quantify what we're doing as farmers that are doing it right? And then if we can quantify that with certainty, 
now we've created an additional potential income stream in the carbon trading markets. Yeah, I think going forward that some of those tests, uh, when we're looking at the soil biology, I think something like the DNA, the RNA tests that are out there, um, I'm really looking for those to be developed further. Um, I think that might be where we'll see a lot of development going forward, uh, especially at the commercial level. Those are cu currently not really widely available at the com commercial level other than the PLFA. Um, one of the complications with those is they are difficult to interpret even for you know a soil microbiologist sometimes. There's a lot of detail in there. And for a farmer that may be you know, almost too much information for them to be able to use. So I'm, I'm really interested in seeing where that goes if someone is able to develop you know, a, a street, more streamlined version of, of some of those DNA tests that we can focus on the most important aspects of it. Um, but as far as the carbon trading thing, you know, I think that's amazing, an amazing opportunity for, for producers, for farmers to have that. One of the things that I see as a complication with that, and, and this is something I particularly see here in Illinois, where we have some of these mollusols that have the, the black soil. I mean, it's amazing soil, very high organic matter that you're starting with. The complication from a carbon trading perspective is it's going to be extremely difficult for some of those soils to increase their organic matter in any in a short period of time it's going to take a number of years for those that organic matter percentage to increase unless they're adding you know a lot of manure or other amendments that are doing that it's it's a lot even with you know no-till and with um cover crops but there's other aspects of that soil that are improving there's a lot of the other functions that are improving improving even if we're not seeing that organic matter number in shop the rest of the functions are doing that too. So I would like to see for some of these carbon, I mean, obviously we're wanting to do the carbon offset, but I would love to see some incorporation with the other functions it, as a part of that, where it's not just a straight organic matter number or organic carbon number, because there's a lot of other aspects of that soil that are improving that are, um, if you're improving your aggregate stability within those soils, that's one of, to me, one of the key indicators that we have in there, the structure that's being developed, the aggregates where that organic matter is staying, your overall organic matter may, may not be changing, but now more of that organic matter is stored within, within those soil aggregates and it's more protected. It's, there's been a little bit of a shift in thinking for protected organic matter. We used to think about chemical recalcitrants that 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 there were certain compounds within the organic matter that just took a long time to break down, which is true. That's still true, but there's a lot more that we found in the research that's showing that a lot of that organic matter that's protected, that's not breaking down, is actually because it's stored within those aggregates and the microbes can't get to it. When you break those aggregates open by tillage, by disturbing your soil, now the, now the organisms, the microbes can get to that and they, they're gonna eat it like any other food source. So I think that's one of the things with this. It's not just the total amount of carbon, but how that carbon is stored. Is it protected? And so for some of those soils, I think that's another way of looking at that, that aggregate stability. If we can incorporate some of those functions in there instead of just a straight carbon number. Plus, you mentioned the other functions too, as far as uh, water quality functions. You know, what is what are we doing in soil health to prevent runoff or be better at, uh, you know, filtration to groundwater or, you know, reducing uh, tile load to where we get more of a sponge out there in, in the field during our more 
pervasive weather events. Um, you know, that's another function that how can a farmer or could you vision a way down the road that a farmer could benefit from these practices, um, you know, be incentivized for, for doing that? So we don't have excessive runoff during storms and, and those kind of things. You know, it's one thing you can regulate, right? It's a, there's a carrot and a stick portion of this. There, you know, a certain amount has to be stick, but there a certain amount can be carrot. And are there other things other than, you know, it's easy to default right to carbon trading, have you heard of other things or, or can imagine other things that could be more of a carrot approach for farmers to be rewarded for doing good soil health practices? Well, I know, you know, you obviously, me working for NRCS, you obviously have, you know, the EQUIP and CSP programs that are in there to do that. But it's really interesting to see a lot of the states now are developing their own programs, whether that's from the state government, um, like Missouri, where when I was working there, they have a cover that cover crop cost share program through their Department of Natural Resources at the state. Um, you have here in Illinois, there's the insurance discount, the fall savings or fall covers for spring savings um, in Illinois that gives you you know five dollars off per acre on your insurance for doing fall covers. You have other programs like in in Iowa, they have uh, Practical Farmers of Iowa has you know cover crop things. There's other programs being done by a lot of other organizations, and I think that's maybe somewhere where we see that going. And then I think it's really interesting. There's a lot from the the uh, the industry side from the commodity uh, going into the companies that are out there that are putting money towards this, not just on you know the organic side but also now more on this regenerative ag side. So even though it's being still grown conventionally, they are putting money towards that. You have a lot of companies out there who are doing that and doing these programs. And that's really where I see a big shift um, and encouragement for, for farmers to develop more of those markets, those infrastructures in place. I think it, it's probably gonna have to come from that side um, to be able to encourage that. And that's Another thing that I see, I mean, we get focused on cover crops in soil health, but um, some of the research I've done, you know, in Illinois, we found that if you can just add a wheat crop to your corn soybean crop, it can make a huge difference on a soil health perspective. So if we can develop more markets for small grains and things like that, it'd be really great to see that. I think those are some of the places that we can go with soil health is increasing the diversity within the rotation as well as with cover crops, you know. Um, and so maybe that can get some of those farmers who are a little more on the fence about making a huge change. It's maybe not as big of a change, especially if those that infrastructure, those markets are available for them. So talk to us about that introducing wheat into a corn soy type of thing for our Midwest-based listeners. What is that doing and what kind of a follow-on benefit are they getting in a corn and soybean crop to help offset likely some of the negative revenue impacts of growing wheat crop here. Right. So it is a little more complicated for, for that. I know the where I was working on it, we were further north in Illinois. We weren't, if you're far enough south, like for Illinois, and I'm sure across a lot of the Midwest, if you're far enough south, you can double crop soybeans, which helps offset that. When you're further north, 
you know, you are limited on your revenue stream for that. Um, if you're near enough to other livestock operations, you know, that you can also sell the straw. We were, they were actually taking straw off of the fields that we were doing. And then we still had an increase in the soil health there, even with some of that straw residues being removed. So that's another way to offset the, the lower income potentially from the wheat compared to a corn soybean. Um, but really what's happening in that for the soil health side of it is just increasing the diversity of Pretty much the roots that you're putting there. The, the roots of a wheat plant in particular, you have these fibrous roots. They put out very different exudates, the sugars and things like that out to the microbes that are in your soil. So you have a lot more diversity in your microbe community that's there. So they're able to cycle nutrients differently than they would if it's just a corn and soybeans. They're able to do more uh, of that cycling of nutrients and potentially give you more nutrients available for your following crops. Um, I mean, you're still getting that same rotation benefit that you get from a corn soybean, but you actually kind of can get maybe even more um, in some of those. There's that I'd have to look a little more at the data. That's probably a little more location specific, but the more crops you put in your rotation from a soil health perspective, the, the greater benefit you have there from a lot of different aspects, because you're basically giving the microbes that are in there more of a smorgasbord, whereas if you're just giving them one or two, they don't have a wide variety. A lot of them, it's only gonna be the ones that are really happy with that diet because they only like one or two things. So you're not getting the full benefit of a microbial, a, a diverse microbial community that you would get if you had a lot more diversity in there. And just adding that third crop can be enough to kind of jumpstart that. It doesn't take a lot to get that going. The more diversity you have, the better, but even that one extra thing can make a big difference. I just jotted down microbial buffet because that sounds like something that would be a good deal. So it'd be the soil corral instead of the golden corral. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Yeah, I just love that. And I, I think that um, that's important for us to hear because especially like in the I states, for example, it, we, we have a few more challenges for adoption of some of these practices, don't we? Can you talk a little bit about what some of those challenges are and, and what you think the opportunities are for growers as they uh, look at these uh, these different things? Yeah, so there, there certainly are a lot of challenges. There's a lot of, of barriers for adoption for these because, you know, from an economic perspective, it does change up a lot of things. It, there's not a guaranteed increase in your income in the first you know, couple years, there is a transition period for a lot of these practices. Um, I think with long-term use of these practices together in a system where you're talking about, you do no-till or strip-till if you're really far north and you're worried about your soils being too cold, if you can do strip-till in there, if you can do your cover crops as well and kind of have this overall system and you can do that long-term, now you're, you've got that whole microbial community. You get a lot of the benefits beyond just maybe increased organic matter. You can get, you know, that better nutrient availability. You get water infiltration. So that means less ponding. So maybe in the wet springs, you're able to get an extra day out in the field. If you're out there a day earlier, that can be a huge deal depending on the weather. And we know <laughs> with the weather that we've been having for the last couple of years, that would be amazing if you could get that extra time. There's farmers who have managed to um, do some really amazing things using their cover crops to get out there earlier because they plant green. So now they're using the fact that their cover crops are sucking up that 
that extra moisture in there, they're creating a more firm um, soil for them to drive over there. It's much more workable at an earlier time than they would be without that. Um, it does take some adjustments, but you can do that. You can get those benefits um, out there. People are using it for weed suppression as a way to, you know, reduce their issues with herbicide resistant weeds. I mean, if you can use a cover crop to help you with that by creating that mulch that's blocking your, your weeds, that can really save you some money on that. You have with the no-till in particular that you have, you know, fuel that you're saving on because you're not having as many passes that you're going off over there. You don't need as high a horsepower equipment. You know, you have a lot of these things, but one of the, the issues with it is, you see that farmers are a little more able to do this from the economic side. They get a more, it's more profitable. They may not be getting as high a yields, but their inputs are lower. So they're more profitable. It's kind of taking the focus off of, I need the highest yield. No, you need the most profitable. Look for the profit, the return on investment, I kind of think. And that's, I think, a lot easier when they go all in. I know a lot of farmers, it's scary. There's more risk in doing this. But if you have those networks, if you have people you can ask, um, whether that's other farmers, that's extension staff, that's conservation groups, if you have people that you can talk to to work through the issues, I think that really helps to give a farmer that you know backup when they come across an issue, when they have to deal with that, so that they can be feel that they can go all in. And it's really when they go all in that they see the biggest economic boost because it takes some time for that soil to really give you the full benefit of those soil health practices. It takes some time for you to be able to say, okay, I don't need that high a horsepower tractor anymore. I can get rid of that. I can rely on a lower horsepower tractors because I don't need that one. You know, it takes some time for that. It's a, it's a journey. It's a long-term journey to, to really get that. But we see from many farmers who are able to do it and do it successfully. Um, so I think one of the things with that, I think the key is to develop those networks, to know who you can talk to. We see that in a number of states um, across the country. I got to work on a project where we were looking at um, some of the data from the census of ag on cover crop use. And we were looking kind of at the county levels and you had counties that had huge numbers of cover crops and then the surrounding counties had very low. And we really looked into that um, and to try to figure out why that was. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that somewhere in that county, there was a really influential farmer who was very good about talking about it, communicating, being there as a resource for other farmers. You Or you have someone on, whether it's at the Soil and Water Conservation District or NRCS, or somewhere that is a, has been there for a while, has created these networks, can connect people so that if people have questions, they can work on it. So I think finding those, those networks is the opportunity for farmers to really go for it. And I think for people on, you know, where I'm at, where I'm working in conservation, trying to promote it more, I think that's a key is developing those networks, being able to serve as a resource. And if you don't know, I'm not a farmer myself. My dad farms. I can ask him some things, but I there's a lot of things I don't have the practical knowledge of. But for me, I think the key is for me to be able to recognize I don't know that answer, but I will find you someone who does. So developing those networks so we can get people to talk to each other so that we can help farmers so they don't get scared off by their first problem because they will have an issue. It, 
they're always, well, mother nature will always throw a wrench in things if something else doesn't go wrong. So it's being able to, to help them know who to go to and be able to encourage them to have that plan A, plan B, plan C, however many plans they need so that they can work through those issues and be prepared to deal with them. I just, uh, I'm just nodding my head through this whole conversation because I'm pretty sure you didn't know anything about Aggie Merge before I called you. And you just pretty much recited our entire litany there of how we like to proceed and what, what our goal is, is to help build those networks. I, I wrote down grassroots. It's mm-hmm. fascinating that you identified that in that survey that you did where uh, adoption was happening, that there was that key person or group of people that were helping with that. And that's what we find is so important is that you got to have a a buddy, you know, you've Mm got to have some um, mentoring and accountability folks to help you figure out these nuances. And Monty is often commenting about it has to be a local application. So you can't have someone from, you know, Western Kansas telling an Illinois farmer necessarily how to do it. Uh, There are some things that can transfer. We always say the principles remain the same, but the practices are different in that local context. It just helps to further these adoption practices. So we're going to take a short break to tell you about our Aggie Merge Conference for 2021. After the break, we'll hear more from Stacy about some of the soil health tests that are available. We invite you to come explore the possibilities of scaling up regenerative agriculture during AgMerge 2021. Given the many changes 2020 has thrown our way, we've made some conference changes as well. Introducing AgMerge 2021, an exclusive on-demand experience accessible from the comfort of your home, office, or tractor cab at your own pace. Together, we'll explore soil health and regenerative agriculture and how you can take concepts to practice in your operation. What remains the same as previous Ag Emerge events is our passion for sharing unique perspectives from thought leaders, entrepreneurs, and forward-thinking growers like you. Let's tackle some of the most challenging problems in agriculture with shared experiences, new ideas, and big-picture discussions. Early bird registration is open through December 31st. Register now at agemerge.com to get early bird pricing and premier access beginning January 25th, 2021. Well, we sure hope you'll consider this unique opportunity to hear all the great speakers at Aggie Merge this year, especially since you can join us from anywhere virtually. Well, now back to our special guest, Dr. Stacy Zuber, the NRCS Illinois State Soil Health Specialist. So, Stacy, I've looked at the Soil Health Institute's information on soil health measurements, and they, too, have done a lot of work in this area. They're calling them um, Tier 2 tests, and they're still vetting them as well. I'm wondering on these tests, however, we know that over time, this is not a one-and-done type of thing on a test. When we're building soil health tests, we're actually building a portfolio, aren't we, of what is happening in the soil year after year so we can kind of look back and see. Whereas soil traditional soil tests, to me, are like a balance sheet. You know, it's a point in time of what's going on in that soil just at that point of time, just like a balance sheet is that point in time in your financial statement, and five minutes later you've written a check and it's a different 
balance sheet. So, you know, those type of things I think are important for people to know as they start looking at how to build this historical information about what's going on in their soil so that they can really have that history and that uh, to be able to look back to make decisions for the future. Can you tell me a little bit about how you see that direction going and what growers might do to to start building this portfolio of, of information? Yeah, so the so- like a soil fertility test, a traditional soil fertility test, we have thresholds for those that we can compare them against. They're calibrated. We can say some of them are better calibrated than others, but we have numbers that we can compare those against so we know what to do you know we we know based on a certain number how much of a fertilizer you need to add with these uh soil health tests we don't have those thresholds we know you know in most cases depending on what you're looking at higher numbers are better um but we need something to compare them against you you basically these are most useful right now the way they are developed as a comparison a relative comparison that you can make so you can make that if you have um, you know, two different fields that you're trying very different practices on, you can do those comparisons on those at one time. But for most farmers, I think the most useful thing with them is to monitor them over time, see how they change over to that time. So creating that, as you said, that portfolio, that background data, so you can watch them, how they change over time. But I think the most important thing with that, with these in particular, uh, you know, Monty, touched on it before, there's a lot of variability within the soil um, because we're looking at the soil biology. We're looking at the microbes and microbes within the soil are very patchy. They like their specific spots where there's a lot enough oxygen, there's enough water, there's enough food. And there's other parts of this, the, that soil that are essentially a desert to those microbes. There's not enough water or there's not enough food available. So you don't have very many of those. And from the surface, we can't tell where those are. We can kind of guess if you're closer to the roots of a plant, that's where, where you're going to find more microbes. If you are in, uh, you know, outside the aggregates in the poor spaces, there's probably more water there, but it's really hard to tell that. So one of the things with these tests is you just have to be very, very, very <laughs> consistent in how you're doing the sampling. But if you're doing these and you're monitoring them over time, you know, you're, we're, most of the recommendations for these tests is to do them every three to five years. Uh, That's a good amount of time in between your sampling. You need to write these details down. You need to write down, you know, how even down to how close to the, if you're sampling when there's cover crops out there, how close to the cover crops are you sampling? Are you sampling in, in the bare soil? Are you sampling right next to the roots? What's the soil moisture like? Um, what's the temperature? When was the most recent rain? You know, there's a lot of details that you need to take into consideration because you want to try to match those up as close as you can the next time um, so that the environmental conditions are as similar as possible for those microbes. That's your best chance of getting. Uh, a good comparison from time A to time B. You know, you want to match those up as much as possible so that you actually, when you look at your numbers, you're seeing the actual change in the microbial community and not a change that's just because you took the sample in very dry soil the first year. Three years later, when you go back and sample again, it's moist. You, Your numbers are probably going to be a lot higher when it's in moist soils, but that's because the microbes are, you know, they're not dormant. They might be dormant in that dry soil. 
there's more of them growing and living there in that moist soil. So you need to take all of those different things into consideration. And that's, that's kind of part of it without making it that it's much more complicated. Sounds like you almost need to have moisture probes associated with soil sample points to determine temperature and, and uh, oxygen status and moisture status in order to have a relative, you know, uh, it, sense it of what that is. It certainly would be helpful, yeah. Yeah. And then you could pull it over time to kind of see how that varies. It, it would be interesting because, you know, the, the probes now will tell you that, you know, moisture status, mm-hmm. air status, ion status, and temperature at depth. So um, for a very affordable amount. So interesting. So tell me a little bit when you five years from now, you, you look back and, and you've accomplished the, uh, some of the goals that you wanted to accomplish. What are those? What do you see the impact that you want to make in your role over here in the next five years? Yeah, so I think, I mean, first and foremost, I think I mentioned that before, I really want to develop that farmer network, uh, have a lot of people that I can talk to, have that connection with, and have as a, as, a, as a backup for me as well, so I know, you know, the more practical aspects of some of these practices, how it actually works when you're trying to incorporate cover crops into a corn-soybean rotation. Um, so that's kind of uh, coming into this, that was my number one goal, unfortunately, uh, right now with the COVID and things like that and having to do everything virtually, that's kind of cutting down on those opportunities. You know, hopefully I'll be able to get out sometime next year into fields and be able to talk to farmers and, and develop those networks. So hopefully by five years, there will be a very strong network that I've developed there. But I think another part of that is creating those networks with the conservation partners that are out there trying to get all of these different groups across the state of Illinois. There's a lot of different groups who maybe have started on the the Illinois nutrient loss reduction strategy, but now they're transitioning, trying to incorporate more and more soil health into that. Um, So I'm I'm really hoping to develop those networks there that where we're all on the same page. There's a lot of consistent messaging about soil health and, and hopefully we're putting on trainings and education um, and outreach and field days for for farmers, for conservation staff, you know, all across the state with that. And I think there's there's a tendency to focus, being with NRCS, there's a tendency to focus on the programs that are available, whether that's equip, equip or um, CSP. But I think beyond that, it's just getting the education, the knowledge out there to farmers, um, even if they aren't doing one of those programs, you know, helping to encourage the adoption of soil health management systems, you know, across the state, regardless of which avenue they're, they're pursuing for, for incentives or doing it on their own. Um, so I think that's, that's key to it is de- developing those networks and being able to, to educate and share the information. Yeah, I think that's important as you build those networks. I think we're going to see that that this starts growing. Have you gotten a sense from even just some growers that you've been able to talk to so far? Are you seeing a change in this area? Do you sense that uh, there's some um, adoption going on? And what are you hearing on the ground as you're talking with growers? Yeah, so I think there is there there is some momentum there. There's a lot of farmers who are doing it, but it is not as widespread as I'd like it to be going forward. I think in certain areas of the state, you and you know here in Illinois, we see um, more willingness to adopt them. And I think one of that, you know, I'm originally from Southern Illinois, and Southern Illinois soils, they're not as high in organic matter. So you know the the typical talking points about soil organic or soil health is that you know 
you want to improve your soil organic matter. And if you're starting with a lower organic matter, you can see those improvements much more rapidly. So I think in areas like Southern Illinois, you have more people willing to go ahead and adopt them. Whereas, you know, across Central Illinois, Northern Illinois, areas that have these mollusols, the black soils, um, with higher organic matter, you have more resistance to change because for a lot of these farmers, they can, their topsoil is, is deep enough that they can lose a little bit of it to some wind erosion and they still have plenty left there from their perspective, you know, that they already have high organic matter. How, how does that help them? So I think part of it is really just shifting that conversation to focus on some of those other benefits from soil health than just the soil organic matter. Because that message worked fine in Indiana and Missouri that has soils similar to Southern Illinois um, when I, where I was there. You know, but in Central Illinois, I think we have to change that message a little. We have to focus on the ability for you know, that water infiltration, for nutrient cycling, for weed suppression. You know, even to get to, you know, disease suppressive soils, you can create a diverse microbial community that can actually kind of shove the pathogens out of the way and reduce your disease. You know, some of those aspects of soil health are really key, I think, for getting over that barrier with some farmers who think they don't need it, but they don't realize all these other benefits that they might be getting beyond just organic matter. Because to be honest, on some of those soils that have high organic matter, they may not see a change in organic matter for a number of years. And so that is frustrating for them because that's all they've heard before when people talk about soil health sometimes or the main thing. Um, but it's more than that. It's all related to it, but it gives you a lot more benefits, a lot more changes than just that number, that soil organic matter number. I think that's so important that you talk about that because again, and you said it earlier, you know, when we, when we determine that our success is off of a yield number rather than a savings in expenses and those type of things, it all goes back to that systems process. And that's what you're talking about there. We're not just one identifier that determines success. So all of those offsets that you mentioned are huge. And I think that's why I thought it would be interesting to talk about these soil tests. I realized that there's a lot of work here to be done. So the good news is there's a lot of work here to be done. So we have important things to be doing, but you know, people want to, you know, we're still kind of that quick fix kind of folks, aren't we? I mean, we see that a lot today, even that, you know, we're kind of over this whole pandemic thing and we're still in the middle of it. And so there isn't a quick fix. As you said, it will take time to see some of these changes, but they are important. And even if they're not necessarily the things that you can quantify, like the organic matter, that type of thing, these are still important things that are happening that are building our soil health which in turn is building our um, health of our plants and, and the food that, you know, is being produced. So there's a lot of important things happening there in that, uh, in, in that statement that you made. So one thing I'd like to follow up with here as, as we're starting to wind down is, you know, a lot of times we, we go down a trail and ask some questions, but I want to throw it out to you. What, uh, what else would you like to us brought up that, that we didn't get to here today uh, to share with us? You know, I think we've actually talked about everything I had written down that was like, these are the things I want to make sure and mention. And I think we've kind of covered all of them for the most part. 
Well, that's excellent. I, I can't believe we, 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 so does that mean we got an A on this, on this, uh, soil health, uh, quiz score here? I, I think we're getting there. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's excellent. Well, I'm glad to see Illinois to, um, uh, get its focus going. Um, honestly, I can say this, um, you know, I, I've got a farmer, so I, I'm allowed to have a, a vote. And, and I think, uh, Indiana has been a real model of what they've done with the conservation cropping systems initiative. I think that a lot of leadership that early on, they're 10 years ahead of Illinois. And I think Practical Farmers of Iowa has done an excellent job, too, and a little bit different approach, but uh, still significantly ahead of, of where we're at here in Illinois. And I think, like you said, that you did mention the one thing about the, um, oh, the runoff and tile water and stuff. Um, I, that's great. I'm glad we did that, but I just don't really feel that's a holistic approach. You know, it's a, mm-hmm. it's a point source emitter type of approach and I, I just don't see the traction getting in there and, and I think that uh, we're really behind in this state and I think other states are behind and it's amazing not only like you said county to county based on who's kind of leading leading the charge there but it's state by state there's variances too in, in what things are going on so I really think there needs to be a full court press in all states to to get going on this because we we have limited resources people are worried about you know, uh, climate change and these kind of things, we need to get serious about our soils because, you know, half of the world's soils have 60 years left. And mm-hmm. all of a sudden, if you take half of it out of production and, and population continues to explode, uh, there becomes a calorie production problem real quick. Like, so I, um, yeah, th- th- this is a big issue. And, and I just think it's, uh, it's too easy to forget about the dirt that we walk on. And, and think of it as, as key to life. Right. But I think, you know, the Illinois Nutrient Loss Reduction Strategy, I think that being in place, it does put some groundwork in for that. It'd be, it would have been nice if they went farther than that earlier than now, but it puts some of that where you have some of those connections and people talking about these issues that can, there's that overlap between reducing the nutrient loss and um, improving soil health. So I'm hopeful that some of that groundwork that's already there, we can use that to jumpstart and, you know, keep going further on the soil health. And a lot of the groups and the, the conservation partners and people who have been focused on that nutrient loss reduction are now kind of pivoting and doing some more um, emphasis on the soil health. Not all of them, but some of them are really kind of pushing that as the next focus, the big focus that they want to go further. So reducing nutrients is fine, but also improving your soil while you're doing it is even better. Yep. Then you don't have the initial problem to begin with. So it, it all, <laughs> it all works great. So no, I agree. All, uh, all change uh, occurs in a social context. So having those social networks and, and personal relationship connections in place, hopefully you'll be able to leverage those. Look forward to that. Hope you can make a, a good impact because, you know, quite frankly, for, for leadership that I'm trying to implement, it's oftentimes I do turn to CCIN or to PFI you know, mm-hmm. on either side of us to, to get that, uh, robust, uh, who's, who's doing things. Uh, so right. it'll be great if we can get more minds working on these issues and especially in all other States, uh, to get these things happening. And uh, the next emphasis I think really needs to be on how do we get, uh, livestock back to the land on a large basis? Because, uh, you know, really when you look at, uh, you know, back to the organic matter context, it really got me interested in this is when I heard Gabe Brown present uh, four or five years ago at no-till conference, no-till on the plains, charting his organic matter progression on his farm. 
you know, and when he went to jumped into cover crops, it was a nice increase. Diverse cover crops, another nice increase. But then when he integrated livestock and it doubled, and I'm seeing 11% organic matter on soils in Bismarck, North Dakota, with a 90-day growing season. I'm like, okay, give me a break. I thought to myself, okay, this guy is nuts, bonkers, making up numbers, something going on. Or if that's true, I need to figure out how he did that. So yeah. for my wife's birthday, this is how this is how romantic I am. I said, let's go to Bismarck, North Dakota. So we go up to Bismarck, North Dakota, and we dig in that ground. And um, you, you've, it's like digging in a coal mine on the surface of the soil. I mean, just aggregates like you can't believe, roots and fungus and just beautiful. You know, you keep away from open flame. It's got so much carbon in it. And just abundant crops. And that's when I knew the real, the real final capstone on this that really multiplies exponentially all the other things we're doing with no-till and cover crops and, you know, low, low input uh, fertilization practices, all these things we're doing on our farm. What really finally is that capstone is the livestock integration. And yeah, like, I think that is key. And I think that's an added challenge here in Illinois where you don't, you don't have a lot of that. You know, there it's, you have areas where there's very, very little livestock. And I think that is key because it comes in, in in two two ways. You where you have the organic amendments right back there in your field, the nutrients going back, the carbon going back from your grazing livestock that are right there, which is important. But you also have, you know, what I mentioned before with the wheat, if you have livestock near you, now you have a, a place for that straw. You have more of a place for, you know, grazing the cover crops. You can diversify what cover crops you're doing you, there's a lot more of a revenue stream with that I think uh, for a, for a lot of farmers it makes it easier to make that decision to add cover crops if you already have the livestock but I think here across a good chunk of Illinois you don't have that much livestock integrated already you don't have that much livestock left because people have moved away from that so it makes it harder to add the livestock you know at and the cover crops and you know it's a very big change for a lot of farmers so it certainly would be the best change in a lot of cases it makes a huge difference from a soil health perspective but it is an added challenge for us that that's not something that a lot of farmers are able to do here very easily they certainly can uh, but I, it's not a challenge right and i wouldn't say i won't let farmers off on the hook me being a farmer for one I won't let them off the hook saying they can't, aren't able to do it. Mm -hmm. I think it's a commitment. It's a head thing. It's a overcoming um, inertia because it's just too easy to grain farm. You know, yes. you, you know, it's it's four months in the spring, eight months in the fall, and winter in Florida. And I <laughs> think uh, that uh, that mentality of if that's what you want, then great. But if you want to get better. I think it's a great opportunity to bring employment back to rural areas. I think it's a great opportunity to make a nutrient-dense product that customers want. It's a great opportunity to, in all of our livestock enterprises, which this isn't hard to do this year, but to do something that makes more money per acre than farming grains. So mm -hmm. um, why, why would you not want to do that, especially if your focus is soil health? Because it... It literally, as far as I can, you know, I can see in, in, in a broader context in multiple places is when you bring the livestock back to the land, you nearly double all of your efforts. It's, it's out of this world fascinating. And it's not the same if you have a barn. 
and you pump the hog manure out, you know, it's gone through an anaerobic digestion process and it's just basically nutrients then. All the sugars, mm-hmm. the enzymes, the microbes, all those things that were in that fresh, steaming, beautiful, you know, turd right there <laughs> behind <laughs> a pig or behind a cow, that's where the magic's at, right? But when we, we compost it, we, we, we uh, anaerobically digest it, then we've just broken it down to nutrients and we've gotten rid of the magic. But yeah, there's, there's lots of things there. And I think uh, if you really want to, this is a challenge for you now, and I, right. I haven't done this to any guests that I can remember of, but if you really want to help improve that five-year vision, having a focus on how do we bring livestock onto land that don't have fences and water, right, as an economically viable option to rapidly, exponentially accelerate soil health, I think that would be a good group to have started in addition to all the other things that you've mentioned because it's just, I think it's critical. So mm-hmm. I'll challenge you there. Yeah. Well, we expect okay. a report back. Uh, so right. Kim's going to set on the calendar uh, five years from today to learn to learn how how that's working right yes we'll send sure. uh, it'll give us a little beep reminder and we'll be calling so all right we'll just then. put that on Looking our calendars now. To it. <laughs> <laughs> no no thank you i'm sorry for a little bit of the joking there dr zuber but i i think uh you know we need to think outside the box we need to think bigger picture and all the things that we're currently doing today will get us some incremental improvements i think when we can look at a holistic system where we're bringing everything back you know to mimic nature the way it used to be you know, bison were allowed to roam everywhere. They didn't have to avoid central Illinois, you know, because, oh, they got enough organic matter. We're just going to wander over to Missouri now. You know, they, they didn't know that. That's why all that organic matter is there is because they stopped. They loved it. They made it great. So uh, let's, uh, let's, let's use uh, four-legged creatures make soil great again. So. Sounds like a good slogan there. Yeah, <laughs> so, sorry, sorry about my rant. But, uh, yeah, I think that's uh, fantastic. If we can, you know, get, get the core group going here in Illinois, I'd certainly be happy to be a part of that group and uh, see what we can make happen. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's exciting. And, Stacey, as you can see, Monty is seriously passionate about this work. And, and the best part is that because he, he tests it out himself, too, so that's always exciting to – to, we get to kind of see it real time, I guess, is what's what's really fun about it. So I just want to thank you for joining us today and for giving us some pathways as we look at how folks might be able to start identifying soil health in their soils. And we just appreciate you taking time to visit with us. Yeah, happy to be here. Well, thank you. All right. Thank you, Dr. Zuber. Well, I hope our conversation today gets you thinking about soil health testing and tracking to monitor your progress. As Dr. Zuber said, it may take some time to see those changes, especially in soils that have really good levels of organic matter. But the other benefits are just as important and can continue to build your soil health legacy and livelihood. And don't forget Monty's challenge to work to practice all five of the soil health principles. Think it can't be done in your local context? Well, give us a call and we'll talk with you about how we're working with folks to adopt these practices across the country. Not only is it exciting, it's a game changer. So have a great day 